Philippians 2.9 says, God bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. In the context there, he explains to us that it is the, the title of Lord that God exalts Jesus and bestows upon him that name, affirming his rule, affirming his kingship, de declaring that Jesus Christ is the eternal king. New Testament uses many names and titles, descriptions to try to help us understand Jesus better. That's just one of them. This man who even secular historians will agree walked the land of Israel some 2,000 years ago is God in flesh. And so these names, these titles are really ways of helping our limited minds to better understand who Jesus is, to, to, to see through these descriptions of him. That the eternal son of God through whom creation came into being, was born miraculously, lived sinlessly, died sacrificially, rose triumphantly, and will return victoriously. And it's those truths that, that we help, were helped in understanding by seeing some of the names and the titles that are used of Jesus. If you would turn to John chapter 1, this chapter alone offers almost a catalog of names and titles for Jesus. It's really fascinating when you read through the chapter how much is said there in terms of describing Jesus through names. We've already seen several of them. He is the Word, the Word who was with God and the Word who was God, the Word who became flesh. He is the light that overcomes the true light, that overcomes darkness. He is described as the unique Son from the Father. John the Baptist also, by way of contrasting himself makes it clear that Jesus is the Christ when John points out that I am not the Christ. It is this one who is coming. John 1 will go on to call Jesus Messiah, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. Each name, each title, trying to help John's readers toward the Apostle John's goal, which is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life. And each of these used to help us identify him more clearly to identify the one who John actually describes in the simplest and most common of terms in verse 45 when he says, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. The given name, the hometown, the father, all sort of summarized in what would be a customary way of describing a man in that culture. But there's much more to this son of a carpenter from Nazareth. And so this morning we're going to be in John 1, 29 to 34. I want to help us look at four more names and titles here that are in this section that, that help reveal Jesus as God's matchless servant who gave himself to save sinners and in saving sinners now draws us, the redeemed, into the everlasting provision of Almighty God. All right, we're going to read the passage. I'll read John 1, 29 to 34, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. It's a, it begins this way, the next day... He, that is John the Baptist, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel." And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, 
This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is telling us of his first encounter as he's declaring the coming of Jesus toward the the crowd. He, He echoes back to when he first saw Jesus, which was at the baptism of Jesus. And so this announcement in verse 29 happened at some point after John baptized Jesus, and it happens, it says, the next day after some Jewish leaders, what we read last week, after some Jewish leaders had come out and interrogated John about who he was, what he was doing, and what authority that he thought he had in terms of baptizing. Uh, John is, is a great one in his gospel in terms of helping us in chronology, likes that phrase the next day. Several times in chapter one, he kind of walks us through the early days of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Verse 29 now says, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. The the first and only prior mention of the name Jesus is in verse 17, where John the Apostle has already described him in these descriptive terms of the word that became flesh, the true light that came into the world, the only begotten of the Father. And it's finally in verse 17 that John the Apostle says his name is Jesus Christ. And so now here is John the Baptist pointing out this one and and seeing him as Jesus. That name, That name, Jesus, that name that was given to both Mary and Joseph by angelic messengers, Matthew 1, 21, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name comes from the combination of of Yahweh and Yosha, Yahweh being God, almighty God. We we speak about that often as we're talking about um, in Isaiah. And Yosha, the idea of saves or helps. And so brought together Yeshua, we say it as Jesus, it's the idea that God saves, God helps. And so it's very simply the name Jesus means Savior. Not an unusual name, not isolated for just him in the first century. It was a name that that mothers and fathers would give to sons even as an act of worship to God, to to declare God as the Elohim, uh, Yahweh as the one, I should say, who, who saves, who helps his people. But in John's context, in the Gospel of John, This is all geared toward a purpose that he tells us about at the end so that you would believe. And so he is trying to help us identify this one better. And so when he says Jesus, it is also to to urge his readers toward the Savior, toward the one to whom you must trust, toward the one who will save you. But then there's more because immediately John the Baptist adds what is new information at this point. He sees Jesus coming and says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That phrase, Lamb of God, that that John the Baptist uses, theologians, commentators have for centuries debated the issue of what was it that actually was going through John the Baptist's mind at that moment? How, How did he foresee, what was he thinking when he sees Jesus and describes him as Lamb of God? Because we have the benefit of hindsight. We, we can embrace that term and understand the fullness of that term. Uh, John is also looking ahead. He's drawing from the, the prophets, but he doesn't have the, the same vision that we do of all that Jesus Christ has done. Well, for John, Lamb of God, his Old Testament background would, would have told him, for starters, Passover lamb. You would immediately think of that, the, the historic celebration of Passover and the remembrance of how in Egypt, 
the, the unblemished lamb was sacrificed and the blood was put on the doorpost and it was a way of covering that home. Those within trusting in God for protection believed that they would then be passed over when the angel of death came through, that it was God's deliverance of them through the blood of the lamb. There's also in Exodus 29 descriptions of sacrifices that were given and it includes sacrifices of lambs, two lambs during a day. In that passage, God prescribes a daily sacrifice of a bull for atonement of sin. And then he says in Exodus 29, 42, that the sacrifice of the morning and evening lamb was to be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. The lamb is sacrificed in the morning and the evening as sort of a, a reminder to those who would come to the presence of God at the tent of meeting that this is the place of coming to the Holy One. We who are inherently unholy are now being reminded of our need for purification in the shedding of blood before we come to the Holy One. Well, fast forward probably 1,400 years or so from the time that that prescription is given of the sacrifice of the lamb in the morning and the evening, and no doubt on that day at the temple in Jerusalem, that day when John the Baptist is about to cry out in the Judean wilderness, there was a lamb that was slain that morning and that evening. On that day when John said, behold, look, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John may not have fully grasped how this was all going to unfold what was about to happen, but he is speaking clearly God's truth. And John shows us that elsewhere in his gospel, how one who during the life of Jesus might speak with clarity, theological truth that we understand even fully than the speaker did at the time. The, the, the leading example of that would be the high priest Caiaphas. Uh, when Caiaphas, who is trying desperately to get Jesus put to death, makes this politically expedient statement, and that's all that he's using it for. Caiaphas, John eleven forty nine 49, says it was a high priest that year. He said to them, those who were debating what to do with Jesus, he said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas is not saying anything in a spiritual sense at that point. He's saying, listen, if, if people keep trying to treat this guy, this Jesus as a ruler, the Roman government is going to bring its army down on us. We will be crushed underneath the weight of Rome because they will stop this. And so why don't we put him to death and stop that threat and save ourselves? And in fact, then John, in the inspiration of God, then explains Caiaphas' statement in verse 51, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Caiaphas spoke God's truth about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, even though he did not understand it at all at that moment. John the Baptist certainly knew the Old Testament, certainly understood the, the, the prophet Isaiah and, and some of what was predicted concerning this coming servant, and he may have already had a grasp of, in some sense of a suffering servant, but there's also a sense in which John was like Caiaphas, at least in, in just not having the, the full knowledge at that point, having to be revealed from God what it was that he was looking for and should say at that time. Now, there's one other part of verse 29 before we move on that I, I think it's worth taking just a couple of minutes to just think about. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Sin of the world can be a hard statement if by world we think it means that Jesus by his death on the cross 
paid the price for all the sins of everyone who ever lived. Theologically, we struggle there because if that's the case, then there are people in hell experiencing God's just wrath as the penalty for their sin, even though that penalty has presumably been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, here's, here's what we know and, and fully agree on, and that is that not everyone is saved. The, the tragic reality is that there are many who reject Jesus, and John has already made that point. Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Some believed, many rejected Jesus. Not all were saved. The, the point of John 1.29 is not to say that Jesus paid the price for all the sins of every person of all time in, in any more than John 3.17 means that in the end, the whole world gets saved. When John 3.17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John frequently uses the word world, like 80 times in, in, in his gospel. And, and there are times when he's using it simply to contrast the, 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 God, the ways of God and the ways of, of the unbelieving world. But he also uses it frequently to say human beings without distinction. It, it is his way of making sort of an ethnic point, if you will, and saying Jesus did not simply come for the Jewish people. So, so that as we talk about the Messiah and the one who has come to his own and then his own do not receive them, understand that Jesus saves sinners. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or Gentile or male or female or slave or free. If you will call on the name of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross is sufficient to save you from sin and you will be saved. And so his message here in, in, in using world is to eliminate any idea of exclusivity and say this is a savior who has come for all who will come to him. So here's what we've seen so far. Jesus is the savior who saves people from their sins. That's the starting point. That's, that's why we are participating in Advent. That's, that's what's at the heart of our celebration of Christmas. This whole season is about the birth of a savior it's about the birth of one who comes to, to rescue people from their sins. After Jesus died and rose again, Acts 4 says, Peter preached in the streets of Jerusalem, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the Savior. He is the one to call on. Jesus is the one who died for sins. Jesus is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is our Savior if you are trusting in Jesus Christ. Then, then that name Jesus rolls off your tongue with joy because you know what he has done for you. You know how he has stood in your place and the price that he has paid. Believe in Jesus as God's matchless servant who came to rescue you from your sins and to give you life eternal. Now, there's one other thing here, though, that I just want to jump forward. We're going to hit the middle verses, but verse 34, where John helps us to see another title that helps us to see the uniqueness of Jesus as this called servant. Verse 34 says, John the Baptist, and I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, in the uh, uh, verse up there on the screen, I've put chosen one in brackets. If you read this in the NIV, it says, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. If you have ESV, CSB, NAS, 
Most of them have a footnote that say some manuscripts say chosen one, and yet we have son, and NIV says chosen one and says some manuscripts say son. So I'm going to try not to go too far in the weeds, not going to take you too far into the seminary classroom, but just enough. We're just going to step in for just a couple minutes. Bear with me. If there's one portion of the sermon that you, you are going to quickly check your text or something for, and I'm never encouraging that, this is that moment, but don't do it anyway. Um, when it comes to translations, why would one English translation say son of God? Another one would say chosen of God. They have different meanings. Both are significant, but they have difference. Our English translations of the New Testament come from copies, Greek manuscripts that are copies of the original. We, we don't have John's original handwritten book of John. And, and frankly, we know enough from church history to know that throughout church history, when, when little bits and pieces of things were found that they thought might have been touched by Jesus or touched by one of the apostles, they turned them into relics and they began to worship those things or to hold them up in some high place and venerate them in some way. So it's not a bad thing that we don't have the originals, but... For our sake and for those who sometimes criticize the Bible or who will question the Bible, there are, in terms of copies of both fragments and full records of New Testament books, there are thousands more, not just hundreds, but thousands more of those copies than of any other book from antiquity, from that era, from that time of Jesus or the time before Jesus. When you compare the manuscript evidence alone, what we have in terms of copies, it, it's no comparison. It, it genuinely is. And you see all of the other writings from that era, and they all have dozens, you know, in the tens or, or things like that, or maybe hundreds. And then you see New Testament, and, and there are thousands, and that 5,000 or more pieces or full manuscripts of parts of the New Testament. All that to say, we have enormous evidence, external evidence of the Bible's reliability. But they are copies. And that's why we get little variations like this. Because John couldn't take his master and slip it on the screen and push the button and get an exact replica. It was relying on, on scribes who had to make copies of the manuscripts. And occasionally there are variations that are errors, and sometimes there's a, a scribe trying to smooth something out. And so let me, let me give you three very quick sorts of things to keep in mind if somebody says to you on a verse like John 1.34, see your Bibles even differ from mine and, and, and you can't rely on them. First one is this, these small variations, and they're not just here, but there's others in scripture, have no bearing on any key doctrine. There are none where there are variations that cause questions about the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, or what it is to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so just like this one here, within John chapter one, if it's, chosen, if it's not chosen of God, I can look elsewhere in John 1 and see he's called the Christ. He's called the Messiah. So I know he's the anointed one of God from elsewhere in John chapter 1. If it's chosen and not son of God, I go down to verse 49 and it says he is the son of God. And so it is clear. This should not shake your faith. This is just sort of a quick historical aside. Second thing, Bible translators are looking for the oldest copies of manuscripts. The idea is the closer you can get back to the original, the more, the more reliable it will be. And so they're always looking, and, and archaeologists looking for the oldest manuscripts. And in this case, there are ancient copies that say, reliable ancient copies that say son of God, and reliable ancient copies that say chosen of God. And so we're down to point three, which is scholars will generally side with the more difficult of the two readings when you have that. Because the presumption at this point is somewhere, some copyist read something and, and 
changed son to chosen in some way or chosen to, to son. And so you generally will look for what would seem like the more difficult reading. And at this point in time, chosen of God was the, the least likely. It was the less thought of term. If it said son of God, we've already got exactly that language just later on in chapter one. That, that likely wouldn't have been something that a copyist wouldn't have paused and said, hmm, chosen of God. I, Sounds a little unusual. Let's make this son of God, and, and that'll smooth it out a little bit. I, I, I say all that to say that I, I think verse 34, even though our ESV says son of God, probably is more likely chosen of God. And, and what it is reminding us of is just the incredible uniqueness of this Savior who has been chosen, anointed by the Father to carry out the work of redemption. This, this theme of Jesus as the Father's chosen one is developed then throughout the New Testament and one of the places most beautifully in Ephesians chapter one, the, the, the book that we're gonna be doing the study on here starting in January. If you think of Ephesians one, it is this glorious call to worship that starts by teaching us that God planned to save a people for himself long before the creation of the world. God, before the foundation of the earth, determined that he would redeem a people and he decreed that he would adopt this people to himself through who? Jesus. This would be done through the Son. The Son was the Redeemer that the Father set forth in the ministry to do that work. And so in Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, his plan to redeem lost sinners, it says, was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We, we often talk about choosing election things in terms of matters of salvation, but before God the Father ever chose anyone to be his, he chose his son to be the perfect and obedient redeemer, the one who would be the perfect sacrifice for sins, who would give his life to ransom sinners and then rise from the grave to give life. Keep that in mind, this eternal decree that is established by God as you look back now at verse 30 and John the Baptist is, again, he's just pointed to Jesus, said the Lamb of God, verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, just thinking back to what we know historically, Jesus was born months after John. John is the older of the two. They are related and probably by about six months, John is born ahead of Jesus. And so what is John saying here? He's saying that God has also in his revealing to him made it clear that this is not just ordinary man. This one who comes to be baptized by you when the spirit descends on you, you know what that will tell you? This is one who is the pre-existent son of God. This is the eternal one. And so John now is able to say when he identifies him, this is the one who was chosen before there was a creation. This is the one we worship because God has entrusted to him the, the work of redemption. And that's why Ephesians 1 is calling us to such praise. And for John, this is such glory to be declaring this. So we have the name Jesus, the lamb given for sin, and the title chosen one of God. One more title in this passage that just want you to think about with me for a few minutes and starts in verse 31. Notice just some of the repetition that comes in, in John's words here. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 31 and 32, John the Baptist is testifying of his first encounter with Jesus. Now, again, they were related, so there may have been other opportunities where they crossed paths, but this, this is the encounter that God has prepared John the Baptist for. That the, this is the one that God has told John the Baptist, when you baptize this one and the Spirit descends on him, you, you see this, then this is something different. This is the one. Now, this baptism of Jesus, we get greater detail on it from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but John does stress something important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that, that uh, the voice from heaven, the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John doesn't report that, but there is a significant piece John does point to, and he says it is the coming of the Spirit. He says, I, God had told him before that when you see this one on whom the Spirit comes, almost like a dove that flies down out of the sky and lands on him, when you see the Spirit come in that way, then you will know this is the Messiah being revealed to Israel. And that's why he describes it there in, at the end of verse 31, that he might be revealed. John the Baptist's purpose in saying this fits right within the Apostle John's purpose for his book. It's, it's about identity. He's, he's, he's confirming and saying, I myself did not know him. And again, they, they perhaps had interaction before, but, but John the Baptist is saying, I did not know this one in terms of him being the Messiah and the chosen one. And he's emphasizing, because he says it twice, I myself did not know him. I did not have prior knowledge. God revealed it to me. And so in this moment, when the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus, then, then God opens John's eyes and says, this is the one. This is the one who is to come. This is the servant. This is the Messiah. That's why John the Baptist says this. He didn't he wasn't trying to take credit for discerning Jesus' identity based on his own knowledge. God had to reveal it to him. God the Father told John, this is my son, chosen to be the glorious, matchless Savior who will be like a lamb and give himself for their sins. And he confirmed that then with the sending of the Spirit. Now, in telling us this, John reveals something that for us it's too easy to take for granted but it's crucially important to the account here. The Spirit will come upon Jesus and remain on Jesus. He stresses that twice here. And Jesus will baptize people with his Spirit. Again, with the benefit of the New Testament, you and I go, okay, yep, I get that. The Holy Spirit comes into the lives of believers. For John the Baptist, these are groundbreaking truths. This is, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, that the Spirit of God would come upon one and remain on that one. Isaiah 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The word for rest, the Hebrew there, is the idea of stretch out and lie down on, to, to make yourself at home right there. The Spirit of the Lord will come and, and rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 42, verse 1. 
Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here is God through Isaiah speaking of a, a promise the fulfillment of which is otherwise inconceivable. Even we today would agree that the idea that justice would spread throughout the earth seems almost unfathomable unless there is one on whom the Spirit of God rests and who is able to bring that justice to the earth, which Jesus will do at his second coming. But already that's being prophesied here that the Spirit will come upon him and empower him to do this. And then lastly, Isaiah 61.1, which Jesus then quotes from himself at the synagogue in, in Luke chapter four, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. Grasp for just a moment how amazing this is for John the Baptist, this truth. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon particular leaders at particular times for specific ministries. There, there were instances of the Spirit empowering them for certain activities that God called them to do. But in Jesus, the Spirit of God came upon him to remain on him. And John says it twice because this is an incredible truth, that this man who is walking the earth with us now has the Spirit of God upon him in all that he does. And John's saying twice, he says, I baptize with water, it's making the point, I, I, I do this important, symbolic act for those who are repenting and want to repent of their sin, but it's an external act and it happens and it's done. Jesus receives the fullness of the Spirit and it will remain on him. And he goes one step further that God revealed to him, Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will now, to his those who follow him and trust in him, will now immerse, identify them in with himself and with the Holy Spirit. He will now join them. We've seen the promises of the Spirit coming upon Jesus, but Isaiah 44 then says this, for I will pour water on this thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, that's us. That's the extension of the promise that not only will my servant be, uh, my spirit be on my servant, but my spirit will then be poured out through him on his offspring. This is, this is new covenant stuff. This is the promise that, that first is really clear in Ezekiel 36, when God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And he'll repeat that again, that the spirit would be within his people a chapter later. That's the promise, the hope that that you and I experience now in trusting in Christ is that now the Spirit is placed in us so that our obedience is motivated and driven by God himself dwelling within us. What the prophets foretold was fulfilled in Jesus. And those who come to faith in Jesus are now powerfully transformed and supernaturally indwelt by God. I, sometimes... I. 
and, and, and I'm not picking on anybody here. Sometimes when we pray and we say, God, you know, be here, be with us. As believers in Jesus Christ, let me give you this assurance. The Spirit is in his people. He is here. He is in this place because of what Jesus Christ has done. And Jesus told his his disciples in Acts chapter 1, after he had risen, he said, John baptized with water, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's the celebration of Pentecost, that, that, that we, when we see the Spirit come down amongst on his people. The baptism of God's Spirit is not some special act for certain Christians who earn it. There really is... Very little said in the New Testament about the baptism of the Spirit. A lot of it is here in the Gospels. Some of it is in Acts and in the Epistles. There's, there's very little said. But one of the most helpful places that we find a mention of the baptism of the Spirit is in 1 Corinthians. And if you know anything about the, the Corinthian church and, and Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, they are struggling. That, that is a church that is struggling with matters of maturity. That, that's a church we can look at and go... We get it. We, we, we can understand. We, we have our struggles. We, we struggle with immaturity too. And, and there's a church that's struggling with divisiveness and, and just foolishness and, and needing to learn and grow and needing to feed on the truth of the word of God. And yet, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit by the power of of God and the work of Jesus Christ, you and I who are trusting in Jesus Christ are joined to his body. We are immersed in the body of Christ. We are, we are living out the New Testament truth that is repeated often to try to get us to get it into our minds that we are in Christ. We are living in him because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who as Ezekiel had said, would take that heart of unbelieving stone and replace it now with a heart that could respond in faith to his working, that he would give faith and life, and that spirit continues to give hope and encouragement and strength and conviction. Commentator Leon Morris writes this. He says, Jesus came that people might be brought into contact with the divine spirit, and baptism is a figure which stresses abundant supply. So John will mean that the spirit leads people into the infinite divine spiritual resources. This had not been possible previously, for there is a quality of life that Christ and none other makes available. My friends, that, that is the, the source of our joy this morning. This is, this is why Jesus promised in, in John 4, when he's speaking to the woman at the well, that, yeah, you can drink that water, but, but if you were to come to me and believe in me, I will give you water that is welling up to eternal life. I will give you a kind of satisfaction that, that you've been trying desperately to find and can only find in me. John 10.10 10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The Savior who was chosen by the Father before the foundation of the world to redeem a people for himself is that lamb who takes away sin so we can be set free, and he is the giver of life. Not just life after death, as glorious as that is, and as much as we look forward to that. He has come to give us satisfaction and contentment and peace in life now in the presence of his spirit empowering us so that now, today, I can live a life that humbly recognizes my own sin and repents of it, as opposed to blame shifting or trying to, 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 to make excuses for it. By the work of the Spirit, I can now see my sin 
and turn from it. Uh, By the work of the Spirit, I can now joyfully obey the commandments to love God and to love neighbor as self. By, By the empowering of the Spirit, you and I now can be empowered to do ministry, to be the body of Christ here on earth. We celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ because he delivered us from the penalty of sin, but we do so as believers in the power of the Holy Spirit because our eyes have been opened to see the majesty of that truth, that that God would rescue sinners, that God would pay the price in the place of sinners. And so in whatever circumstances you are in this morning, in whatever you are facing, the presence of the Spirit of God in your life gives you reason for hope gives you reason to be encouraged, gives you steadfastness to hold fast to him and to believe in him. The the presence of the spirit is what produces the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and all that Galatians 5 teaches us. Brings you the very presence of the savior who loves you and died for you. I say again that Isaiah 44 promise because that's the one that speaks to you and I as offspring. I will pour my spirit Upon your offspring and my blessings on your descendants, they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. For all who are weary, there is refreshment in Christ. There is hope in Christ from the the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, gives abundant life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you. We come before your Father, in your name, and we pray that we as a people would celebrate, rejoice, take hold of these truths again that we've recited before, the incarnation, these truths that we've seen John the Baptist speak before. Lord, pray that you would give us by your Spirit just a a fresh sense of encouragement, of hope, of acknowledgement that this is the incredible work that Jesus has done And not only saving sinners from penalty, but now bestowing upon them abundant life. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Lord, you know circumstances, you know hardships, you know those who are walking through valleys at this moment, those who are hurting, those who are struggling in faith. Lord, I pray that that your spirit and your word would bring truth to bear to speak into their very soul with exhortation to rest in you, to hold fast to you because you are the one who is holding us. Lord, I, I pray that if there's anyone listening here online this morning for whom this all seems like fantasy of some sort, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would cause their eyes to see the truth that the heart of unbelieving stone would be supernaturally replaced by your grace and a heart of flesh that sees that Jesus Christ is beautiful, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and he is the one who has given himself in the place of sinners. Lord, as we move through the rest of this week and all that this week brings with it and all of the travel and pressures and shopping and wrapping up at work and finishing activities and just all that will so preoccupy us. Help us by your spirits and dwelling to to know that you are not only with us, but we are in 
Christ, that we have our greatest joy and our greatest comfort and peace in simply pausing and meditating on who Jesus is, what he's done, and what riches have been bestowed upon your people. Lord, we have hope because of what Jesus did. We have joy. And we pray all of these things in his great name. Amen.